My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation, and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guests today are Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. Lee and Justin together wrote a book called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. It is a beautifully written and researched exploration of the spiritual, cultural, social, and, and collective traditions of accessing spaces of silence in the midst of noisy life. And as, as all of us intuitively know, the world is as noisy as it has ever been and only getting more so. And we're not just talking about sort of the actual sound waves produced by all of the machines, the cars, the trains, the air conditioning units, the, you know, the, the hum of the, of your air purifier, whatever it is that's like around you making noise. The noise of the television, of all the videos that we, that are, are watched and consumed. Like there's a lot of actual noise, but there's also informational noise as they unpack in this book. We're just absorbing outrageous amounts of information. And there's also inner noise, the noise of our own minds as we try and navigate this noisy world. And the book Golden is written to help us connect to what silence actually is in the midst of all that noise and what it can do for us as individuals, as groups, and even as, as society. This book, one of the things I enjoyed about this book is its uh, ambition to think about on the level of policy, what might it look like for us as a, as a society to orient towards a space where we have more access to our own attention we have more access to spaces of silence where we can really listen for what it is we care about, for what it is that's needed right now, for what is possible in the world that just simply can't come to be if we're scrambling and hustling and drowning in all this noise. And as you'll hear in this conversation, they, they tune into the fact that silence isn't just the absence of noise. It's a, a kind of presence that brings energy, clarity, and deeper connection. So I hope as you tune into this conversation, you feel some, some taste, you get some glimpse of that presence, that energy, that vitality. And I hope that you walk away with a sense of how you could bring some of that to your own life, to your family, to your workplace, to your organization, we need this right now. And I was really, really pleased to be able to read this book. It landed with me quite deeply, and uh, I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I will, of course, include more information about Justin and Lee's work. They, they're doing some amazing stuff that both includes and expands the scope of this book. And uh, they're just two incredible human beings that are walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And they're listening in silence, too. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Lee and Justin have for us. All right. Lee, Justin, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks, Andy. It's yeah. good to be here in the Wonder Dome with you. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's good to have you both here. I want to, um, your book, Golden, about the power of silence. 
starts with an invitation. The very first line in the book is, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And um, I thought maybe we could start there. I thought maybe I could invite you back into your own invitation and, and maybe just have each of you share in a minute or two a story about a time of deep silence. And we can see where that takes us. Does that sound, does that sound all right? That sounds dreamy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's funny you use the word dreamily because there's, there's an image that came up to me in exploring this question that was from a dream that I had when I was a little boy of a balmy morning sunrise over the ocean and this mist over the ocean and this deep presence and silence. And as I was writing parts of this book, particularly exploring this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? I was brought back to this dream, just mm. this image. Mm. Mm. And we say in the book that sometimes it's balmy air over a vast ocean or stillness amidst high untrammeled mountain snow. And we also explore the kinds of silence that are in these intense moments in the, on the dance floor or in rushing rapids. Or in my case, I talk about the experience of being in the newborn intensive care unit with our twin children who thankfully were healthy, but needed to stay for some weeks after being born early right at the start of COVID and a moment when amidst all the sound and hubbub and anxiety and nervousness of that space, I just held both of my kids skin to skin and forgot mm. about all of that and felt our cycles of breath and heartbeat almost synchronized. Mm. The deep silence of, of that moment too is what comes to mind and something to write about in the book. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful. Thanks, Justin. Yeah. I, well, thank you for bring starting here. Cause what I'm aware of is you remind us of that question. What's the deepest silence you've ever known is how that question became our guide with this book that when we asked the question, we liked it. We maybe liked it from a mental place. But the reactions when people, when we would ask that question to different, all these different people, you know, neuroscientists and Grammy winning opera singers and a man incarcerated on death row and, you know, politicians and artists and poets ourselves, of course, as well. The answers surprised us. As Justin was saying, they would point to all different kinds of um, activities and experiences, many which were auditorily quite loud. Mm. And then, you know, we, rather than, I, th I do feel like I remember thinking, well, maybe they're not getting the question or, you know, but instead to just stay open, what are we, what are we being shown? What are we being shown by this question and the answers we get? And that's what helped really guide this book, that it really is an exploration of not just auditory silence and external silence, but internal silence and mm. the vast ways that we experience deepest silence. And for me, so many of those are that 4 a.m. mark on a dance floor or perhaps being out in uh, in nature and the elements, but maybe the elements are really roaring or they're, mm. you know, it's actually mm. quite, it's a trembling experience. It's not a zend out experience as I might. Mm. So, or, and then the, experience I share in the book where really what I'm peering through when I meet the, deep, the deepest silence I first share is madness, is absolute psychosis and the many voices that were going on in my postpartum uh, mind and that, that that could be penetrated through and that I could feel this, this blue sky of silence that that was holding me all along even through that absolute mm. madness of not sleeping for 25 days. Mm. Um, yeah, I, that, that this question is our teacher. This question shaped the book. Mm. And we're, we're interested in that, in the questions that shape our, you know, can shape what they can shape in terms of our thinking, our mm. creations, mm. our mm. work in the world. Mm. I notice I want to go in two directions here. So let me just see. Lee, I wonder if you're if you're comfortable sharing 
this that story which you alluded to briefly in the book is is pretty potent and um and even just now as you evoke it again the sort of dealing with with postpartum psychosis and and the many voices that were inhabiting your your mindscape and then finding something underneath that or inside of that or around that that was that was holding it all i wonder if you'd be willing to share a bit more in whatever way you feel comfortable about how you landed at or arrived at that spaciousness in the midst of that intense cacophony inside yeah um well i think what was happening is i was coming in to this experience of being a first time mom uh with a lot of noise a lot of outside noise about how in the world my own concerns about how i was going to get to do the work i love in the world which is collaboration coaching and consulting and working with these chemists and engineers and scientists who are trying to get harmful chemicals and things out of our products and mm. environment. So there's all this work I really care about, but how is I going to do that and be a new mom? Mm. And I was also in a new marriage and in a pretty new life altogether. And there was a lot of noise wrapped up in that. So mm. coming into uh, pregnancy and going through pregnancy was a noisy place. And then as soon as I uh, gave birth, I went into sort of an ecstatic place where I made up that I could do it all. I could actually, I could, I could do it all. I could write handwritten notes to people. I could host a parade of people coming through to meet the baby. I could clean the grout or keep the grout in my kitchen clean and still be this, you know, kick-ass leader out in the world, whatever I was imagining, you know, and then I, and I was doing that by not sleeping. And it was a bit like my, um, a, a flip had been switched in my mind where just sleep was no longer needed. So I'd lay down, I'd think I was sleeping and I'd pop back up and I would just start into all those activities, but it was fear mm. that was driving mm. that, like a lot of noise, a lot of fear. Mm. And so in came these characters, I would say, you know, there was, once I started getting, um, attuned to the fact that I wasn't, uh, that, that maybe I was kind of moving into a place of madness one of the voices in my head was that that I could figure it out like an escape room if I just thought about it enough. <laughs> and this also relates to the book. There's a bit of craziness to this, always addressing things with more thinking and talking. And that's part of what drove us to write this book is just mm. wanting, you know, maybe mm. the answers lie somewhere beyond all the thinking and talking and the content. Maybe the answers are in the silence. But anyway, and then there was the sister striving, trying to be the super mom woman out there in the world. And there was the part of me that was recording everything because the, you know, the, the, the voice that thought I could just think my way out of it also thought, well, if I just collect data on that, mm. if I record my voice, if I, so anyway, they're all these voices. When I was sitting in an office with uh, my psychiatrist, as we figured out that I wasn't sleeping because I didn't really know I wasn't sleeping. It sounds strange, but I don't know how to say it other than that. Like I asked, I, I said, how do you know if you're sleeping or not? How do you know? And I really meant it. So mm. that's the space I got to in those mm. 25 days. Mm. But Dr. Tenenbaum or Dr. T, as we call him in the book, he said, he asked this question, have you ever lost your witness? And that's when all those voices parted ways. And I just became aware of, of I guess, me or my witness or the, I don't know what to say, some other presence as well. And then that clear answer of yes, but only once. So it was as if something, someone, me, some part of me was tracking all along. And it was as if that part of me was also really deeply supported by this presence of silence. And mm. that was the experience that told me it would be okay. I would be okay. My relationship with my daughter would be okay. Mm. You know, that was, that was stressed out. You know, I, I had to quit breastfeeding to take all these very, heavy medications. It was hard. It was really hard mm. that my marriage would be okay. That was super stressful in a very new marriage. Um, and that I would be okay. I would find my way back to sanity, to a place of quiet, everyday quiet. So I'm not entirely sure I got a little swept in your, in the question of about the no, story, really, but did I hit on I what could, you were hoping? Yeah. Maybe I could share what I'm, uh, what's landing with me and Justin, I'd also love to just hear what's sparking in you as you share that story, Lee. I'm, 
I'm in touch with one, the way that fear is really noisy and the way that fear drives us to take actions that we think we must or that we should or that uh, are expected of us or, or that the sort of best thing to do and the ways in which that noise can overwhelm us. And it's, it's like you can handle it all until you can't. And I'm, I'm actually in touch with, I think it's a quote from the, from the Reverend Dr. Barbara Holmes in your book who says like, silence was a lot easier back in the, in the mystical days when it was either silence or the donkeys. But like now we like live in this, this world where you, there are these like pretty sneaky narratives about, about being a professional and being a parent and being a homeowner and being a, a gracious host and be, and like all of these things that you're supposed to be are all, all of them are sources of fear. And that's a really noisy place to live. Even if it doesn't quite feel like madness, I sense a lot of us are, a lot of people are in a, what's that phrase? Like quiet desperation, right? Like how do mm. I, it's like I'm quiet, but it's everything around me is shouting at me to do something and it feels like too much. So that's what I'm, I'm receiving from that, that really intense and beautiful story. Thank you for going there with me. Justin, what's what's happening for you as you hear Lee share that story again? I'm always so moved to hear the story and and how the story shares. I feel like it, it reveals so much about the nature of noise. How so much of the noise we face is internal in this world, and you know, there's the auditory noise, there's the informational noise we face, and then this story that Lee shares is a, is a really poignant profound, almost harrowing example of what it can be like to be amidst so much internal noise and that there's a way through Mm -hmm. that we can reconnect to silence. Mm -hmm. And this is a book about how we navigate the auditory noise of the modern world and how we navigate the world of social media and the informational demands. And then how we navigate the internal noise that's not just in situations like the kind of state of psychosis Lee navigated past in her postpartum period, but the everyday noise and anxiety that's so endemic to humanity right now, like you were describing, Andy. And so much of that noise is because of, you know, to what you were just saying, the pressure to perform, the pressure to see our worth as dependent on other people's perceptions of us, which is only amplified by social media. And by the way, you know, so much of business operates today and and career ladders. So this book is a gentle invitation for people to enter a space where you can give up one of the most basic responsibilities these days, which is having to think of what to say Mm. or really having to think of how we appear or defend or promote a point of view Mm. to rest one of the uh, one of the ways I sort of um, gauge my relationship to a book is sort of the psychoactive effect it has on me. You know, like <laughs> if if I can feel something as I'm reading it or when I'm done reading it, if it if there's something happening in the way I see or sense, and I am really appreciating that when I as I was reading and when I finished this book for without without. Ch- consciously choosing to change any of my behaviors or practices. I just sort of had this kind of access to silence while I was washing the dishes or silence while I was playing noisily with my children. And, uh, and, and I'm struck with a bit of like a tension I felt when I finished the book, which is sort of this, like, how the heck how the heck does a gentle invitation towards silence get heard in a world that is uh, both intentionally and uh, unintentionally designed to be so goddamn noisy? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I'm lucky at the, in a way I felt a sense of like grace or blessing that the book had found its way to me and that I already had a reading practice and could focus on reading and take time for it. And, you know, there's sort of all these things and, and I just wonder how you how you all hold that tension because there's something about that paradox of like, listen to me, y'all got to shut up, <laughs> please. Totally. 
So like I, I like felt the invitation to silence and it landed with me and I kind of a voice in me started to get worried. I'm like, yeah, maybe we do need this, but how do we get people to listen? Totally. Someone was like, uh, when the book came out and I just posted some info on it on, on Twitter, I'm not a very active Twitter user, uh, you know, keeping on brand for this book. <laughs> I put something out there and someone like made a post, like ridiculing it, like, oh, promoting a book on silence. And I was like, and I thought about something I could respond, but I was like, no, it's totally right. This is crazy having to promote a book on silence. <laughs> But you yeah, know, we're, like, it's, we're a bit, it's a bit of a trap though, right? Like we, there's yeah. something you're, you're attempting something quite Herculean in a way. And yeah, I wonder just how you, as, as people moving through the world, maybe, le- maybe it's less about like the marketing angle and just more about like the reality that, that we're, you're trying to invite more people towards a different way of being. Well, I think we actually felt a little bit depressed about this for a moment around the time we finished the manuscript. We were just like, why did we just write such a long book about silence? And our, our publisher at HarperCollins, who's a very wise woman, Karen Rinaldi, said, no, it's fine. She said, you could have written a book that was a wispy meditation to evoke silence. And there's some of that in this book, sure. But this book is primarily... An argument as to, in scientific and medical terms, in philosophical and theological terms, in economic, sociological, political terms, why the answers to the problems we're facing, as Lee said, might not come through more thinking or talking. Why the answers to these massive problems humanity's facing, why the answers might come through the open space between the words, between the thoughts the space of intuition. Mm. Mm. What would you add to that, Lee? There's so many, there really were a number of tensions we were holding. And one of them is, you know, describing all those levels in which silence matters and noise matters in our lives and the impacts it's having and trying to use things that are effective today. Like let's hit on the science, let's hit on the neuroscience, you know, that you have to go through those doors and then we get into the wisdom traditions and things like that. So, that felt important. And at the same time, attention here is that this is also something we feel is about remembering. So it's an invitation maybe to consider all these many aspects, but also just to remember something you know, or we know as humans to be true, that Mm -hmm. silence is important. It isn't a newfangled idea. We're not talking about a life hack here. We're (laughs) reminding us of something that we know it's innate in us this need is innate and we for whatever all the reasons have pulled away from from having much space and time for silence and so we're just inviting us all into a remembering it's a remembering that we also needed a reminding you know that we also needed so there's a lot of tensions in here about also that which is in our control, you know, that which we can create in our environment. And then that which is really like looking, you know, is this a personal choice or is this a whole system that is driven towards making noise? And of course we know it's it's both. So that's another tension. It's like, we don't want to collude with the idea that we all just need to do it better. This is just mm-hmm. one more thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. No, there's a whole system that's driving us towards noise and particularly towards like a, um, you know, colonizing our own attention. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a big issue. And so that, you know, there were lots of things we were playing inside of, and that's of course where life is most interesting anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, so no well big said. surprise. Yeah. Maybe we can pick up that systemic thread. I, I think that's one of the, that's one of the parts of the book I found most um, inspiring, most kind of like ambitious to sort of say, many of the books I, I read in, in what I might call this genre, which is sort of the, the genre of um, inquiry, contemplation, uh, practice, self-development, self-actualization, really works primarily at the unit of the individual. But your book, I mean, there's a whole third of the book devoted to the systemic complexities that you're pointing to, Lee. And, uh, and, and there are some beautiful reminders in there that, that what you mean when you say silence is not, um, actually shutting up necessarily. There are times in which speaking 
speaking for the still voice inside that's hard to hear because it's so noisy. This is, is one of the most powerful acts we can undertake. Uh, so I just, yeah, maybe you could start to speak to that. Was that always part of the ambition of the book when you started? Was that something that emerged as you started your inquiry? How did you come to this stance as authors and thinkers and practitioners to say, we've got we've to not just aim this towards individual practitioners, but we've got to aim this towards questions of policy and, and collective practice and community? Thanks for asking, Andy. I mean, it's really, in a way, intrinsic to who we are. I've spent a lot of my year, a lot of my career working on Capitol Hill on issues like climate and poverty and foreign policy. And Lee has worked in getting toxic chemicals out of supply chains, as well as leadership in fields like domestic violence and various forms of violence prevention. So it's it's who we are. And it was it was a uh, a natural choice for us to look, yes, at the individual work, but but to go deeper and, and seek to find systemic solutions. You know, honoring this idea that the conventional thinking is that silence is withdrawal or apathy or pulling away from a conversation, and then you know we could see that silence is violence, which is something that we honor, something that we feel is true that to be withdrawn from speaking truth to power to to be withdrawn and to refuse to speak out in the face of injustice it's a real evil in our world and we honor that but most of that kind of withdrawal that we see in our world today is actually born of noise and distraction rather than silence when we have true spaces of silence and contemplation in our lives we have the presence that's required to be able to perceive and effectively in address injustices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we look at the example of Gandhi and many others in the book of how silence has a vital role to play in social justice. And, you know, I'm thinking systemically, we look in the book at how the way our society is organized today Yes, at the individual level with kind of like you can rest when you're dead mentality, (laughs) FOMO hustle culture on one hand, but on the other hand, a systemic structural orientation, where when we think about how we measure our society's foremost benchmarks of progress, like gross domestic product, GDP, that doesn't just measure the maximum production of industrial and material stuff. It measures the maximum possible production of mental stuff, intellectual stuff, the sound and stimulus of the internet and the conversation. And we don't measure, according to GDP, the value of a pristine forest that's intact. We only measure the value, according to GDP, this progress measure, if we chop down the wood and sell it at Home Depot. And by the same logic, we don't measure, according to GDP, the value of pristine human attention. We only measure the value if we chop it up and commoditize it and turn it into eyeballs on a screen, selling advertising revenue, you know, creating advertising revenue for Facebook or Twitter. Hmm. It's, hmm. it's the same kind of logic. Hmm. So how can we turn toward at a personal level, at a societal level, not that logic of the maximum possible production of stuff, but the logic of building as much presence, finding as much presence as we can with one another, of listening, of tuning into the places, tuning into the states of being through which the real solutions will emerge. Mm. I thank you, Justin. Really impacted by that. I want to hear Lee what's cooking for you, but I just there's mm-hmm. like a voice in me going like, actually, the logic if we're really true about the logic for society, it's probably something more like, what do you mean you're dead? So what? We got shit to do. Keep working, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, like if, if if we could figure out how to keep working once we were dead, I think our society would do that. That's how intense <laughs> this pressure to produce is, and uh, you know, so there's kind of there's something really sad in that, like sense we have that like oh our reprieve will come when they finally can't get any more out of us you know and that's Mm. like that it's a real tragedy of our of our sort of of that kind of glib statement so i just wanted to share that what what was cooking for you 
Well, I'm thinking about the you know conventional wisdom, as Justin was saying, um, that of silence meaning solitude, just kind of collapsing those meanings that that we experience silence and solitude, and we might that might be where we find our deepest silence. But it was important for us to really explore silence in relationship too. And when we ask this question, "What's the deepest silence you've ever known?" So many people spoke of a shared silence mm. and. Mm. Uh, silence is magnified when it's shared for many of us, um, for the two of us especially, we've noticed. And so we really wanted to look at relationships at work uh, and how we do our work together and how we can invite in more silence and spaciousness there and how we can address the default of noise, whether it's like, uh, you know, I can be messaged and called or texted at any time or, you know, all those kinds of norms that have crept into our workplaces and what is that doing for our lives, the quality of lives to also how it is in family life, which we're very much in the thick of, as we mentioned <laughs> early on in our connecting time. So uh, how can we invite more silence into our shared time as families and um, including deep, you know, more immersive time together in silence? And then as a, as cultures, how can we really celebrate those moments, those milestones in life, those big moments, whether it's even in grief or in love and in joy and celebration of milestones. So we really wanted to take, make a um, case for the, the diverse um, ways and the actual, the actual, it feels like the real way we live this life, which is with mm. other people, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. and, and how silence can come into that and really explore how different that is for so many of us. Uh, you know, quiet is a, is a subjective experience as is noise. And, and so what does it mean when we combine all these humans together to have that experience? Hmm. Um, I have heard, uh, and this may also be in the book, but I've heard some people, I really want to underline what you're saying, which is, which is not just that, Hey, we need to find a way to be silent in community, but rather that there's a kind of uh, deepening or amplification of silence. That's only possible in community or, or maybe only possible is too strong, but there's a certain texture to it or a certain amplitude to it that, that happens in community. And I've heard people even go so far as to describe, um, kind of a, a pre another presence that emerges. And you also, and that we might not be using it in exactly the same way, but in your book, you talk about silence as the presence of something like, being able to realize that the whole universe is vibrating right now, mm, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can be present to that. Mm. But I wonder specifically on the community piece, if you all could speak a bit to that in, in whatever way you relate to it, to the sense that when people find that kind of silence together, that kind of communion, that intimacy, that that something that is more than just a group of individuals seems to appear or emerge or show up. Mm. Well, you're getting into a big question about the meaning of noise and silence, you know, that leads into this, how the power of shared, how the power of silence is magnified when it's shared. So maybe I'll first just say a few words more about the meaning as we see it of noise and silence. And we could get in this question of how it's magnified. Mm. Mm. Nice. That sounds good. You know, so we look at noise as, as unwanted distraction as all that interferes with our clear perception and intention. So at one level, silence is the absence of noise. It's a space where no one is making claims on your consciousness. Mm. Mm. So like he was talking about that, those roaring sounds of nature and how we'll often find our deepest silence, you know, running the perfect line through those roaring rapids or around a waterfall or high decibel chirping birds or whatever it might be in nature. But that those sounds aren't making claims on our consciousness. They're not asking for us to speak and to think of what to say. So at one level, you know, this, this silence is the absence is, is the absence of noise, but it's this space where no one's making claims. Mm, mm, that distinction yeah. really resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's this place where there's, you know, to what I said, nothing interfering with clear perception or intention. And then silence is also a presence unto itself. You know, it's a state of not knowing. It's a place of letting go. It's accepting that it's okay to not have to constantly fill the space. It's good to just be. 
and and we come into this view that as you were saying about encountering the fundamental vibration of life it's like when there's nothing making claims on our consciousness we're in a place of deep stillness and silence in our auditory sphere informationally and even internally in this place we can encounter the canvas of creation you know we can encounter wholeness you know if the sound and stimulus of speech and thoughts are there to signal what needs to change, what needs to be done, then just this pure, pristine awareness signals the opposite. It's where nothing needs to be done. It's pure wholeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to encounter this in a group of other people is something rapturous, is something extraordinary. You know, to encounter this within ourselves is something precious and rare. But if we could be in a group of other people, where we're in this place where we can experience the basic canvas of creation, this fundamental vibration. It's like, what a way to go to church, you know, what a way to really like feel the, the joyousness. And we, we talk about this silence as something joyous. It's often seen as like a moment of silence, something somber, but we're talking about the joy of tuning into the essence of reality. And some people experience this together in meditation together. Some people experience it together in moments of shared deep work. Sometimes people experience it at a dance party, as Lee was mentioning. Sometimes people experience it together in psychedelic and entheogenic experiences. There's all different ways that people access it. Thanks, Justin. Lee. We can see you talking, but we can't hear it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That was my mic doing a little funny thing. My mic at home. Um, As we explored these uh, shared states that that Justin was describing, and particularly speaking with neuroscientists on this, we found that they have a term to describe some of this um, self-transcendent experiences or STEs, which are often done, you know, often experienced in, in community. So say they're flow states, things where we're, you know, deep flow states or they're mystical experiences, which may, you could be alone, you could be with others, but the experience of a self-transcendent experience is that you are, let's just say lifting from yourself, from your egoic self, you're transcending your sense of self and connecting to other other things, nature, other, you know, who knows what the cosmos, Hmm. your God, who knows what. So, so whether you're alone or with others, you are feeling that connection to others. So you are, but a drop in the ocean, but you're nevertheless of the ocean. And that's a pretty ecstatic feeling, although also terrifying for many Hmm. (laughs) ecstatic, sometimes Hmm. terrifying feeling. Hmm. And we just became really interested in that, like the site, how, how a scientific community would talk about that. And then how, uh, you know, wisdom tradition, mystical community might talk about that and how, you know, we came to talk about it. I found myself when I would feel these, um, these really peak moments of, of silence collectively, I would feel a sense of life, the presence of life, decompression of time, you know, the melting way of separations and, and space, you know, just feeling that sense of unity and oneness. And it all sounds a little, you know, I don't know how it sounds actually to people. I can know at different times it can sound, I don't know, like high talk. I don't know, <laughs> you know, or just like little like flimsy to talk about. But but the felt experience in my cells, it changes me. It makes yeah. there's something I'm better from it. I'm better for it. And we're better as a community for it. It changes something in a really mm. powerful way. Mm. And I mm. think that's just one of the things when you talk about that, that fierce hope we have for humanity. And one of our, our fierce hopes is to, to really bring more awareness and appreciation and respect for how sacred that is to share silence in this way, to feel mm. silence together, to mm. enjoy it and appreciate it. Mm. Beautiful. There was one, one experience I just wanted to share of uh, teaching meditation on Capitol Hill in D.C. I was for many years a, a policymaker, I was a legislative director for three members of Congress. And during that time, I uh, I 
started a helped to co-found a, a mindfulness program and started teaching mindfulness to policy staffers on Capitol Hill and communication staffers. And we had a program that we launched that uh, had members of Congress, just a few of them, but still it was a start meditating. And I remember the first time I taught, it was in this very official looking meeting room in the Rayburn House office building on Capitol Hill. And it was a busy day when Congress was in session. Everyone was in suits. We had a good turnout, you know, 35 or 40 people. But you could feel those D.C. amygdalas in high gear, thinking about the votes, thinking about career issues, and jockeying and all their personal issues going on. You could just feel it. I gave some instruction and some words. And and then we went into the silence and it wasn't anything in particular about any fancy mindfulness or meditation practice, but you could feel a transition in the silence from being able to sense almost like an ESP kind of way, the tension going on, the noisiness inside people's minds. And through the power of the silence over 20 minutes of very simple practice, you could feel those amygdala start to subside and calm a little bit. And by the end of the practice, you could feel certainly a lot more tranquility through the silence in the room, more alignment, tuning into the silence in the room. But you could also feel more of a sense of unity in the room, which is not to say it's any kind of panacea to gloss over the very real political challenges and divisions in the country. I'm not saying that. But It's a starting point. And one of the intuitions for us in writing this book is that getting beyond the noise and tuning into silence is a necessary precondition for being able to do anything else that we want to do. And I know we hear this sometimes about, you know, the attention economy, for example, and how dealing with the challenges of the attention economy, that's a precondition for solving polarization or inequities or climate change. And and we agree with that. We go a little bit further in this book, though, to say that appreciating states of no sound stimulus, appreciating states where there's no rush of the dopamine hit, appreciating states where we can simply tune into the essence of what is, this appreciation is a prerequisite, too, for being able to solve the problems in a serious way. Mm -hmm. I want to offer one image I was having and then go deeper into this line of, of inquiry that you're in, right, that we're in right now. The image I was having is that uh, although we might not have been able to hear it with our hearing senses, I, I bet that there are some animals or some sensors that like if you had put it in the room, you could actually hear the like spiky, jangly hum and rush of everyone's nervous systems and the pumping of the blood like when you're tensed and stressed out, your body is, your physiology is noisier too, right? And it's like, you know, we all have this field, this, we're all just generating an, uh, an electromagnetic field. And I, and I bet if we could see that like a bumblebee could, we would see how like, and then that, that's dropping you're describing. We could probably see that happening too. Like everything start to kind of smooth out. I see you smiling a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of horses and how that's been used a lot in, in leadership uh, work to kind of develop because they're such heightened creatures tuning into the, um, how the directive energy, the passive energy, the, you know, they really respond. They're, Mm. they're hierarchical. Mm. They have a hierarchical system and they respond to those kinds of energies quite, um, and any kind of prey animal often does, has that heightened sense. So that's what was making me smile there. Yeah. I think we are, we would argue that there's a lot, there's a lot more intelligence, a lot more information we could be gathering if we had more quiet around us to be sensing that instead mm. of that deadened mm. or even just overwhelmed sense of noise mm. on top of noise on top of noise mm. where you just cannot find your way. There's a space of discernment that's available to us when we have ample silence, ample quiet. We, there's a way in which we can sense the world more accurately and then make, hopefully, you know, make that reintend and. Uh, mm-hmm. the direction mm-hmm. we put our energies and where we put mm-hmm. our attention. And that's part of what we're interested in. Yeah. Okay. So, so one of the, the sort of um, kind of community practices that you touch on a few times in the book 
that I that I think might illustrate a bit the case you're both making for a kind of action that comes from a place of stillness as opposed to a kind of action that just is coming from a place of reaction, like versus like, and then act. And it's, it's in the kind of like Quaker that it's the Quaker approach to community decision-making and conflict resolution. And I wonder if you all would be willing to speak a bit to that as like a concrete example of what it looks like for a group of people who don't all agree with each other to work issues that are often fraught and challenging and emotionally charged. Absolutely. Yeah, we spoke with a birthright Quaker recently who's held senior leadership positions in the nonprofit sector and also business. And he described to us about how like the Quaker meeting for worship, which is fundamentally about silence, fundamentally about creating a space where you only speak if you're moved to speak, to ask yourself, does the sound improve the silence? The Quaker business meetings, which they call a meeting for worship for the purpose of business, is also an opportunity to tune into the silence while making worldly decisions. So in many cases, Quaker meeting houses and the organizations that run them also run a neighborhood school or have other types of investments in the community. And there's serious worldly decisions they need to make about budgets and about the allocation of scarce resources or zoning decisions. And sometimes this, this, man we interviewed got to know, Rob Lippincott, he described to us sometimes the tempers and the passions, they've run hot. There could be really serious disagreements. So one of the tools within the Quaker approach is called threshing, the separation of the wheat from the chaff. And the tool of threshing, primary tool of threshing is silence. When the tempers are hot, when there's a contentious debate around something, the clerk, the person running the meeting will often call for a period of silence. And in that silence, kind of like I just described with Capitol Hill, when things first get quiet, right after a disagreement, you can feel those hearts beating like you were describing. You could feel the the loud physiology happening. And over time, there's an opportunity to tune into the breath to tune into the kind of zeitgeist of the room and sense what's the real issue here? What is it that I really want? What is it that this other person is seeking to say? Mm. And what Rob described to us actually also quite similar to that description of what happened on Capitol Hill. There's a feeling of unity in the room that he described. And often it'll be that someone else says just what he was intending to say, but more concise or better, he was saying. And there's a sense of more understanding with the person who had a contrary view. So again, this isn't to say that silence is this panacea. Oh, just be in silence and the issues will solve them out. There's real substantive disagreements about things in the world, and we honor that. But how do we think about silence as an ally? How do we think about silence as a source of wisdom and as a way we can tune in to reconciliation to to a force of reconciliation to greater harmony Mm. thanks for that justin Mm. so if we if and you do this in the book but maybe we can we can do this together for a little bit i think we have maybe about 10 minutes left together and and um if if you if we were to begin to imagine a world, or maybe maybe we'll limit our ambitions to a nation <laughs> that uh, that had these kinds of norms and uh, laws and practices, both implicit and explicit. Maybe maybe I'll put it another way: like if you were to imagine some of the highest lever places where we could counterintuitively somehow show up and get everyone to breathe together for five minutes before taking action. 
play with that a bit. I mean, like, what, where would you start to show up and intervene and kind of offer this gentle invitation to people? What spaces would you want to see start to shift or, or evolve? I might start us off with some places where we have seen that come in and what the difference it's made. And so starting with some of the work in removing toxic chemicals from our supply chains, as Justin was saying, this problem was really complex as so many problems that we care about are. Um, there's tens of thousands of largely unregulated chemicals in our products now, and uh, the burden is to proving them harmful rather than proving them safe. Mm. And mm. so that burden is on the scientists to prove. And then, you know, let's say you go into a whole big campaign and advocacy groups, and you, we ban, you know, BPAs, and then we get BFAs or we get BSAs, you know, we get the regrettable substitute that could be as bad or worse. So that's a quite a whack-a-mole problem. And uh, the way we were coming at it, the only way that it was being, you know, is that that was the strategy. So mm. that strategy was not working as so many strategies that we're engaged in are not, but it was the best we had. And um, so um, about oh, 10 years ago, actually, uh, Arlene Bloom, who runs the Green Science Policy Institute, invited a whole group of cross-sector uh, folks, people in the business regulations and academia out into the redwoods to contemplate this problem. And the theme, I facilitated that process and have for the last decade, but the the theme there was to slow down. There isn't much time. Hmm. It's really to slow down, add silence, walk in the redwoods you'd like to protect, all these other things, you know, do, you know, create enough open space to think about this problem differently. And so they did crack, a, a, you know, to find different way, a different strategy and a different solution towards this by grouping these harmful, harmful chemicals in groups of six families where they share some some chemical composition and certainly a certain purpose or usage so we can so we don't have to all be chemists to figure out this i mean even the chemists can't figure it out it's so complicated right so you know is it a highly fluorinated chemical is it pfos is it a flame retardant is it heavy metal you know is it bisphenols or phthalates so creating these groups is it antimicrobial and then making purchasing decisions, then making, you know, as a consumer, as a large purchaser, like, like Google green team, you know, so that they, you, we can navigate the waters. So having had the, the breakthrough experience with this group of a really seemingly impossible problem being hacked. And that, you know, this is not to say that problem of toxic chemicals is still alive and well, and, and it is a, it is a problem, but now this is being taken on, it's not a left-right thing. It's a everybody thing, and and it's being addressed in the main, you know, in legislation. And it's it's really change is coming, change is happening. Businesses are changing their practices, and they can do so like that to make things different. Like IKEA saying no more PFAS in my mm. our stuff. Mm. So I'm hopeful about what's possible for those of us working in complex issues that we go out and kind of address these issues, get in some deep silence, share some time differently, slow down because there isn't much time mm. so we can navigate through these complex issues. I'm hopeful about how that could look in all kinds of scenarios. Mm. So that's just one place to get us started. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for that example, Lee. Mm -hmm. One thing that comes up for me as well, Andy, with this question is wherever people are in conflict. And I think the obvious thing there is you know, in corporate boardrooms, maybe, or in Congress, some of the places we've been talking about. But we think of this at all levels. I mean, at all different segments of society, really the heart and soul of this book is a man named Jarvis J. Masters, who's been in prison for decades for her crime that the preponderance of evidence shows that he did not commit. And in that time, Jarvis has become a renowned Buddhist teacher, and he's learned how to navigate the noise of San Quentin. I mean, steel bars clanging and party beats on lo-fi radios and constant hollering. And he is such a master at the work of being able to navigate that soundscape and stay in touch with his compassion, with his ethical center. And he describes to us so many situations where people are just on the verge of making a decision that's going to send them into solitary confinement, or that's going to result in some kind of horrendous thing because they lose their temper. And 
Jarvis describes to us the work of how to tune into the breath. Yes, in a meditative sense, as we typically think of meditation, but also just in the sense of being able to tune into these pockets of peace where they're available Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to recognize that these pockets of peace are something good or something edifying, something healing. Mm. Mm. This is also reminding me of our conversation with Tyson Yonkaporta, who is um, the author of Sand Talk, um, Indigenous Wisdom. Let me see if I can remember that title. Uh, How Indigenous Wisdom Can Save the World. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we posed, in a sense, this question you're asking us to him, and his response is, was that, you know, noise is everywhere. Um, it is permeated, you know, even the most remote uh, corners of the Amazon, much like dioxin and, and one's breast milk. It's just everywhere. There is mm. no hope in this way. You can't get an unrelated or as an unpolluted relation at this, at this point in time, but that he felt hopeful about that because this is a time to be alive where we can actually call us back to remember to mm. and to help change and create the systems that our descendants can have mm. the mm. the silence we 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 seek you know mm. that they can share that that there can be a celebration in art and in time and shared together and that we can kind of declutter the the communications going on so we were we we're just this remembrance of connection to silence and to the source. So we do love to dream into this place, and we do love his calling forth to to really be creating that, be working to create that for not just ourselves here right now, and if that's even possible, but our descendants, and that we very much want to see. Yeah, yeah, I remember really clearly in that portion of the book where you're speaking with him. He sort of talks about the way that that nature moves on much longer, slower, deeper time horizons and that we have a capacity in listening to kind of like just, just sync up with that and like both ride those longer waves and also very gently with humility kind of sends, sends something into them that might, instead of being a, a, a pollutant that we're like, oh shit, there's another thing we've sent forward to the future. Like, sorry, descendants, we could instead say, here's a gift we've attempted to send forward to the future and work on that time scale. So we're, um, so really glad you presence that. It's a, like, that's, a, that's the, that's very much what the Wonder Dome is about as well. And I sense it's what your book is about and what you're both doing in the world. I wonder if you'd be willing to try an experiment with me. Um, if, if you're okay going a few extra minutes, I wonder if, if we just, what if we just sat in silence together for three minutes and then at the end of that three minutes, will you just have a last word before we sign off? Want to try that? I love it. Oh yeah. Okay. So the request would be then to leave your microphones unmuted. Uh, the risk here that I'll name is like screaming kids could go by. There's workers downstairs in the place that I'm in. We could hear a loud drill or something, but we're not, we're not saying like no noise, but in the, in the spirit of what we've been talking about for the past hour. Mm-hmm. And I've got a little timer here and uh, I'll ring it. It'll ring once at the beginning and then it will ring again after three minutes. And then we can just see where, what, how we want to close. Does that sound good? That sounds so good. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So let's let's do this. The timer's going to go up. The bell's going to ring in about ten seconds. I'll try and move it away from the mic so it's not too loud. <clears throat> no bell. We'll just start. <laughs>
So that's about three minutes. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for the conscientiousness and care and thoughtfulness in these questions. And I'm thinking about this, this intuition you had back in creating this podcast around your, your fiercest hope for humanity. Now, one thing that comes up for me with this book is the hope that we can appreciate silence as the source of the solutions that we seek. You know, in a world where it's like everything is about the dopamine hit, everything so often is about, you know, getting the last word, you know, finding finding the entertainment, finding the information, finding the the next big thing. It's like, can we just tune into the open space and a recognition that the next big thing may come through not so much seeking it through tuning in through the utmost presence we can bring to this moment. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you, Justin. Mm. Lee. Yeah. I want to thank you for that time too. Um, my mind just emptied in there. And then I was looking around at the wonder dome you've created <laughs> and appreciating the such a space and that silence is now, you know, silence is in that wonder dome and the relationship between wonder and silence, hmm. the ability to feel it and experience it requires some spaciousness in us to really recognize what's just occurred, especially the tiny wonders in life, you know? Hmm. Hmm. Um, so that's where my mind went as well as to where Justin's went, which is just deep gratitude for this opportunity to, to be with you and to share this time to be in the wonder dome <laughs> to feel the resonance of the book through you and with you as well and just deep gratitude for being invited mm. here thank mm. you mm. so beautiful well um maybe also thanks to our mutual friend lauren lines who connected us that was really sweet thank you both for Shoot. sending me a copy of the book to spend some time with it was it was really generative and uh, I guess maybe if, if anyone who has listened this far and who has sat with us in silence, thank you for sitting with us, wherever you happen to be in that moment. Uh, yeah. If they want to read the book, uh, where, where can they find it? You can find it most anywhere. You can find books. It's published through HarperCollins in the United States and in the UK through Penguin, um, coming out in 14 other languages here in due time. And uh, so we'd love for you to find it and spend some time with it, share it with people. We'd love that. Brilliant. Well, thank you both. Thanks everyone for listening in. This is such a treat. Thank you, Andy. Grateful mm. to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever. <laughs>